Aziz Rana is professor of law at Cornell University and the author of a book called The Two Faces of American Freedom. He analyzes how the American experience of freedom can be fitted into a global history of colonialism and whether the idea of settler colonialism informs the way we live in our country even still today. His next book is called The Rise of the Constitution and it looks at the rise of constitutional veneration, the way we think of this text as founding and identifying and defining us as Americans in the 20th century against the backdrop of a growing American global authority. He's written widely for law reviews and academic journals as well as the popular press and holds a JD from Yale Law School and a PhD in political science from Harvard University. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Welcome, so I'm really happy I have on the line with me Professor Aziz Rana, who is Professor of Law at Cornell University. First of all, Aziz, thank you so much for being on Think About It today. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Aziz, you've written a book, called The Two Faces of American Freedom. It was published a little while back by Harvard University Press, which offers a history of the United States, which is perhaps not the dominant history that most sort of high school students and college students are taught in America today. And you start this book out with a quote from Walt Whitman, our poet of democracy, whose 200th birthday is tomorrow, actually. May 31st, and 1819 was when he was born. And I wanted to ask you something about this Whitman quote, which is a Whitman quote that's quite unusual, and it's directly linked to your idea whether the expansion of America, the expansion of land, the settler idea to move from the East Coast to the West Coast and take all this land goes hand in hand with the expansion of rights and our freedoms, that the physical material expansion is matched by the idea in increasing everybody's liberty. And if I can quote this Whitman poem back to you, and then we can maybe take off from there, because it's such an amazing illustration of what Whitman believes America could achieve or accomplish and maybe doesn't. So these four lines you put in front of your book, the two phases of American freedom are, long having wandered since, round the earth having wandered, now I face home again, very pleased and joyous. But where's what I started for so long ago? And why is it yet unfound? When I read your book, you gloss these lines by Whitman, who positions himself at this moment on California shores at the edge of America that they knew at that moment, looking out west toward the Pacific and being a bit lost whether America fulfilled or is going to fulfill its promise and potential. Your book seems to me a way to go back to this early moment, much earlier, before Whitman's birth, to say, what is America's potential and how is it linked to the material expansion of the first settlers? Maybe tell me how, why you start in this very early moment, even pre-revolutionary America, and what are they trying to achieve in breaking from England? Yeah, so my argument is that the best way to think about the long sort of trajectory of American political development 
really from the earliest days of colonization up until the 20th century, is as a sustained experiment in what I call settler empire. And by that, I mean that Americans combine very rich internal accounts of freedom with external projects of land expropriation and the subordination of excluded groups. And that, in a way, the American project, not unlike various other types of settler siblings, so the British in Australia and South Africa, sort of organized around four basic principles. They carried with them to the North American colonies a radicalized version of the Republican tradition that you've seen emerge in England and in parts of Europe. And this was the belief that freedom entailed really enjoying continuous control over all of the primary sites of collective life, over economic, political, and spiritual decisions. But that it was also located within a variety of other kinds of claims. So the second claim was that this kind of rich and expansive account of freedom is not something that can be universally enjoyed. And it can't be universally enjoyed in part because the society was a pre-industrial agricultural society and that for some people to enjoy the free work of property ownership and independent homesteading and artisanal production, there would have to be other people that engaged in the hard but degraded forms of work. And that led to two other really key elements of the early American project. The third is that if economic independence and land ownership is central, then you need access to land. And so you have native expropriation and territorial expansion, conquest, as a really central part of basically being able to ensure that some select group of people enjoy freedom. And then the fourth is that if freedom is not universal, then you need individuals to do that hard and degraded form of, forms of work. And the way that Americans solve this problem was by racializing the divide between free and unfree labor, and in particular, by having imported enslaved African workers do the work that was necessary for the society, but that was not viewed as consistent with internal freedom. And then justifying that decision over time, precisely on racial and ethnic terms. And in this way, Americans created a very unique settler community that stitched together a rich, again, account of liberty, but with really profound forms of subordination that were mutually entangled and constitutively bound. Rather than two separate disconnected elements, the freedom entailed the empire and the slavery and vice versa. And what, if I can just go on for a bit more, like what sure. the Whitman poem means to me is... This is in 1860, so it's already in a much earlier time than even the closing of the frontier in the late 19th century. But Whitman is noting something that's emerging about American politics, which is that the imperial dimension is increasingly successful. The continent is being settled. The U.S. is becoming slowly a global player. But this last phrase, but where is what I started for so long ago and why is it yet unfound? What that means is that if empire was supposed to be the servant of freedom, of a rich internal account of freedom, for more and more internal settlers, those that are treated as full American citizens, members, that the actual benefits of like this rich account of freedom, economic, political, and spiritual, isn't actually being achieved. And in a way empire and the project of 
both racial but also territorial control seems to be something that is just spinning on its own for its own purposes and ends without the kind of grounding and a commitment to participatory self-rule. And in a way, that to me becomes the story of the 20th century, which is as the U.S. becomes a global power, it's in a sense continuing to wander around the earth having wandered, and yet wandering in a way that's no longer coherently bound to an account of freedom that is meaningful for most people in this country. What you're doing is you're writing a history of pre-colonial America and the United States for a 200-year history, and you're saying the idea of settler expansion at some moment erases this emancipatory impulse, this idea of freedom at the heart of it, or this idea of equality. And you're saying there's a different origin story that we have to go back to to understand how America justifies itself. To go back to this original moment when the settlers are saying we need to have our own land because we need to take control of our economic freedom, we need to be politically independent, break with England, and spiritually independent, have our own religion or absence thereof, all these freedoms that we're given. And you're saying this doesn't expand because to achieve those goals for some group, they need to actually compromise those ideals. When you're at that moment in the very beginning, the pre-revolutionary America, is there a battle over what will win out? Or are you suggesting that the settler expansion is so fundamental to the American project that it's not just a battle over better ideals and one is going to win out over the other, equality versus you know, rights to property or things like that. So it seems to me that you're saying the settler history is a key to understand something that isn't just a little aberration or an error that can be corrected in the American story. Yeah, I think it's important to separate two things. First is an account of the meaning of the revolution. And then the second is how to make sense of those moments where you have American settlers, so European Americans that have migrated to the continent, that start to recognize the difficulties of actually enjoying meaningful economic independence and political self-rule in this society that's organized on profoundly subordinating terms that's tied to a set of settler exclusivities. And those are two sort of separate developments. For me, the best way to understand the revolution is not as an American revolution. So the story that I was raised with that's common in the US is that the revolution in a sense should be thought of as the first kind of anti-colonial moment. It's not that different than you know India becoming free from the British. And my argument is, yes, it's anti-imperial in the sense that it's in opposition to a metropole center. But unlike the moments of decolonization that produced third world independence in the second half of the 20th century, it's an anti-imperial moment on behalf of yet another, a second phase of empire. Mm -hmm. And really the best way to think about the revolution is not as revolution, but as a settler revolt against both native peoples and the British center. And this is something that's the foundational constitutive fact of the politics that marks the 1760s and the 1770s. That a lot of, take for example, no taxation without representation. So this is a central element in American revolutionary discourse. But well, what was that actually about? The reason why you had taxes is because the British wanted to be able to maintain British troops in the colonies. And the reason why they wanted to maintain British troops in the colonies is because 
you had American settlers that were engaged in various kinds of confrontations with both French Quebecois that were under British authority and also with native peoples and wanted to have access to that land. And so the troops that were positioned there were really positioned there to maintain various kinds of boundary lines and to navigate the relationships among these different subject populations, which were all kind of populations under the empire, native peoples, French Quebecois, and American Anglo-Protestant settlers. And the reason why the taxes were so onerous is because for Anglo-Protestant settlers, you're essentially paying money to be told by the British that you couldn't claim land you believed was necessary for your own independence, and also to be treated as more or less the equivalent of these other, excuse me, subject populations that you viewed as fundamentally inferior. And so the revolution, in a sense, is an assertion of settler supremacy and authority vis-a-vis all of these other populations, and that becomes an essential engine of American development after independence. So you're adding a layer to the story. So there's no taxation without representation. It's not just the unjust king in England is ripping us off by making us pay taxes back in England, but saying the British are instituting a system in which we are put on the same level with people who we don't feel we're on the same level as, as subjects of this kingdom. So the difference between a revolution, what you're calling an American revolution versus a settler kind of revolution is that they are saying, we don't want to be some settler group among others, but we want to assert our own authority over this land here. The fight is not as much or not only with the imperial crown, but also internally over who owns yeah, and who has the right to Absolutely. So there's land. a story that's quite common of the break from England as this status overturning egalitarian moment. And in some ways, that's certainly the case, that it leveled various structures of colonial deference that existed within settler society between gentry elites and artisans and ordinary farmers. But in another really critical respect, it was a war of independence meant precisely to entrench and reaffirm status hierarchies that were supposed to separate settlers from either native peoples or even enslaved African workers. And that's something that's actually really key to note. And it's the reason why, you know, I, I think it's best to see it as a very particular kind of revolt against a certain set of tendencies that were emerging in the British Empire. And on behalf of having something like a new decentralized mode of settler territorial conquest and expansion that would not be dictated from abroad. Right. Now, this ends up generating a set of developments in the 19th century where you have at different moments in time actors on the ground, particularly small farmers or artisans, that come to realize that there are certain internal developments within settler society, so either industrial development and the kinds of hierarchies it's producing or the nature of imperial expansion, where the benefits of economic independence are still not being provided. And it leads to these moments where you have European Americans start to think, well, maybe we actually have to get entirely outside of this framework. We have to collapse some of these classic colonial dichotomies and hierarchies as a condition of actually enjoying material self-rule, that we have to push back against the politics of expansion, or we have to push back against the racial hierarchies that mark enslavement and then Jim Crow society. But that's a story really for the 19th century and early 20th century. In this earlier moment, this revolutionary moment, What's happening here is a kind of 
unified project against the kinds of dictates that are coming from Britain that's limiting the independence of settlers and the hierarchies that settlers enjoy. So what it sounds like, and tell me if this is correct, that the story of gaining independence and breaking from Britain, it's co-constitutive with implementing an idea that white settlers have absolute priority, sort of right supremacy over indigenous and then ultimately the black population, and that they are freeing themselves from some kind of oppressive regime in the name of freedom and equality, which will ultimately expand to everybody automatically. So your story is one saying it's a bit more complicated. You can't just separate this moment of breaking from the British as saying it's in the name of ultimate sort of progress, reason, freedom will expand. Whitman's idea of marching to the shores of California and everybody will be swept up in this tide of progress. And he's saying, well, there's something inherent in this break. And that's why you want to look at it as a settler revolution is very different from the American revolution. And this co-constitution of these two things, you're saying it's not just a contradiction. It's actually, I don't know if you want to say essential or fundamental to this American project at that early moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, native expropriation or slaveholding is by telling a story of hypocrisy in multiple traditions, and these traditions are in kind of uneasy alliance. And I want to say no, instead, that they're actually really importantly bound together. And they're bound together in a way precisely by the political project that emerges in the context of confronting the British. And one way to think about this is that the British Empire in the early 1700s is a small empire. It's largely it's a trading empire. There are very few actual subjects. You have these scattered colonies that are not particularly wealthy or significant across the eastern seaboard of North America. By the time we get to the 1760s, and this is in the wake of the conquest of Bengal and the Seven Years' War with France, all of a sudden now, along with these anglo you have navigators, land disputes. They're trying to treat these different population centers as legal subjects in some meaningful sense, because you have to just to be able to maintain control. This is just what it means to have a massive, diverse, plural empire. And the way that the Anglo-Protestants in North America that become the independent United States experience this is as a direct assault on what's read as their birthright as true British subjects. And they see the revolutionary project as re-entrenching, reaffirming their own true subjecthood and supremacy, both in terms of social status, but just in terms of political, economic, and territorial control over these other populations. And they understand independence as not just then about reaffirming that status, but also fulfilling this radicalized Republican ambition of actually through land ownership, through direct political participation. But that goes hand in hand with having control, therefore, over these subject populations. And so the things that we think of as sort of most distinctly emancipatory about the American experience are the product of and bound historically and ideologically to the things that we think of as most troubling. And indeed, if we conceive of the U.S. as exceptional in any sense, so I think this is a story that says actually the U.S. is not particularly exceptional. This is not unlike many other siblings. It's that the American over the next you know, set of centuries is then, is it possible to have that rich internal account of freedom 
but have it disconnected from these projects of subordination? Can you actually have a truly universal commitment to this kind of radicalized vision of self-rule? And, you know, at various moments, you have significant efforts to achieve this, and it continues to this day, to, in my view, the basic struggle of the national project. What you're putting your finger on in this really important book, this rewriting of a history, say there's this creed of America versus what you're saying that it's baked into the American project. So what happens at this moment in terms of political debate and what kind of oppositional voices are there? Is this a new story or at what moment are people quite aware that this is inextricable from the American experiment rather than this awful side project which we have to overcome and ultimately we will overcome there. There's some injustices and some inequalities and some unfreedoms and we will just fix those little parts. So when we go into the 19th century, what is the story, the other story, the story that you called the creedal story, the creed of America is sort of ultimately the triumph of freedom. What does it take hold and what are the oppositional voices to it? Yeah, so now we're actually getting closer to what I'm currently working on in my book project. So I'm in the process of completing a book called Rise of the Constitution that's really organized around like when is it that the idea that Americans today have of the country and of its values, when did that take hold? And when did it become so centrally attached to veneration of the Constitution, that the Constitution has a particular meaning, it's the idea that the U.S. from the founding has been committed to freedom and equality, that what the U.S. promotes abroad are the world's interests because the U.S. is the world in miniature. When did all of this stuff get off the ground? And the argument that I make is that it's really closely tied to the U.S.'s emergence in the 20th century as a global power. So if in a way that Whitman quote is from a slightly earlier moment where Whitman's kind of wondering like, well, what's the U.S. going to do now? It's increasingly settled the continent. And yet the Republican tradition, the Republican account of freedom isn't actually fulfilled. And there's all sorts of intense internal social conflict. It's 1860 that that poem is initially written. It's on the eve of the Civil War and the country is essentially breaking apart at the seams. Right. What happens at the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century is that as the U.S. emerges onto the global stage, it emerges onto the global stage at a decidedly late moment after the colonies have been taken. Mm -hmm. And it faces massive guerrilla insurgencies in places like the Philippines. Mm -hmm. It's facing rising political self-assertiveness from non-white communities that are on the path eventually toward independence. And that over the first half of the 20th century and really coming, in a sense, coalescing especially during World War II in the early days of the Cold War, what American policymakers increasingly do is that they construct an alternative account of national identity to make sense of American power. And this is the idea that, well, what distinguishes the U.S. from Europe is that what Europe does is it's motivated by this principle of extraction and empire. But the U.S. instead is motivated by a principle of constitutionalism. It's the first truly universal nation. It's where the Enlightenment came down to earth. And the proof of it is in the Declaration of Independence and how that declaration was entrenched through the Constitution. And that what it promotes abroad is a principle of constitutionalism that helps generate democratic self-rule in countries elsewhere. And all of this becomes a central justificatory language for American power. And it also becomes the primary language for domestic reform and for the politics of inclusion. It becomes key 
to how African-Americans in particular in the mid-20th century become incorporated as increasingly more full citizens. It becomes the heart of what you can describe as either Cold War liberalism or what I call creedal constitutionalism. And that's the dominant ideology, in a sense, of the broader American century from, let's say, 45 to 2016. Mm -hmm. And it's the terms within which folks that were raised in the U.S. came to understand their national past. So just as an, an example, they read the Declaration for the invocations of universal principle at the beginning, so that everybody's endowed with certain inalienable rights, et cetera. They don't read the Declaration for the concrete list of grievances at the end. And those concrete lists of grievances include that the British are accused of fomenting domestic insurrections. In other words, fomenting the possibility of revolts by enslaved persons because they were arming enslaved persons. The Declaration includes his other grievances, bringing Native peoples to the borders, uh, not facilitating Protestant projects when it comes to Native land expropriation. And so the entire, let's say, ideological but essentially educational framework for thinking of the U.S. is through a particular kind of mythos that abstracts from the actual historical conditions. Right. Now, I know I'm going on, but I just want to add something else that's really significant for what I'm doing, which is one of the things that's happening today in the general fracturing of American politics and the ways in which that long period of the American century or the kind of extended ideological frame of the Cold War is coming apart, it seems, with the return of white nationalism and the return of socialism is a general rejectionism of the U.S. that you get within certain elements of the left, which is you tell the story of native expropriation and enslaved African workers as proof that it was all just a lie and there was nothing at all liberatory about the American experience. That's not what I'm doing. I come from a particular kind of dialectical tradition where I see freedom and subordination as deeply bound together, as always kind of interlinked, and that ideas of freedom emerge out of experiences of subordination, and then it's that struggle that's what generates the possibility of meaningful and true social change, social transformation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I still want to say that the emancipatory kernel that is embedded even within you know, a violent settler society is itself profoundly liberatory. And that in a way, the recounting the story is not just to reject or repudiate the American past, but to see it in truly tragic terms as something that is bound by paradox, by these complications that are constitutive and mutually entangled, and that require thinking through the possibility of universalizing. So by giving a more nuanced story, what you're saying, there's a kind of dialectical relation between freedom and subordination, rather than this freedom comes at the expense of a subordination that won't go away. And there isn't one side is correct saying either America is staked on injustice or America is automatically redemptive. What you're saying by understanding the story, we'll have a better chance today to come up with a way to correct or escape our current problems, rather than looking at one saying it's going to be redeemed automatically because America always marches toward the sun or the West. Exactly. So what I'm interested in getting away from is the kind of simplicity of the Whiggish or progressive narrative that you get of the U.S. that dominated the late 20th century. The U.S. is sort of on an ineluctable march toward redeeming its own sins, as well as some of the deeply pessimistic or nihilistic accounts 
of the national project and instead say, just like this is also a story of de-exceptionalizing, decentering the U.S., just like any other national project, it's marked by profound structures of subordination and hierarchy. But within these structures, there are spaces for agency that have been exercised in the past, and there are also spaces for ideological development and emancipatory thinking. And that really what being politically serious in the present means coming to grips with this relationship between agency and structure and using the historical past in part creatively as a way of making sense of where agency might operate now. At the same time, I should say, you know, my own politics tends to be quite suspicious of particular kinds of ideological approaches to the U.S. So even if I hold out profound optimism of the will about the possibility of transformation in the U.S. and and the attitude toward the Constitution and the constitutional project, and I'm deeply suspicious of the way in which constitutional perfection has been bound to a story of American exceptionalism, creedal redemption, etc. So we can talk a little bit about why that might be the case and what that means for my current writing. But I see those two things as separable. Like you can both say that there's some really profoundly freeing elements of the national project that should be universalized while saying that the ideologies that have dominated the second half of the 20th century are not particularly helpful in allowing us to perceive that or get there. Well, it is interesting you pose this question. I think it probably in one of your essays, probably leading to this current book you're working on, whether you can restructure current arrangements and they have to be profoundly restructured or you can, what you say, rationalize them, meaning they contain the germ of their perfection or they are not perfection is probably the wrong word, but you can, you can build on this tradition. And what you're saying now, it seems to me, you want to take some parts of this tradition that are usable, but not in a way to use them as sacred words that just fulfill themselves, but saying there's an enormous amount of work and each word has to be taken apart to say what does it contain as potential and where has it actually been complicit in obstructing this potential. Yeah. It's interesting, I'll ask you something which I really haven't thought about reading your book, but I grew up in West Berlin and my story was very much, I literally grew up under American occupation because the mayor of Berlin was subordinated to the American forces. And I grew up very much in the 60s and 70s with the story that America liberated Europe and Germany. It defeated the Nazis and, you know, too late, but at least ended this kind of atrocity one of the greatest crimes in history. And I was very much brought up with this story of America as the harbinger of freedom, the realization of every human's potential. And then when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, a lot of my schoolmates were very opposed to American imperialism. And Germany was an effectively, West Berlin at least, was a little occupied island in the middle of the Soviet Sea. So, so I lived through exactly this tension, whether America, what you're saying, and how your book moves toward the idea of America spreading freedom around the world, and whether people can believe that and say that's sincere, or whether this is just another version of settler expansion. My own view about it is I have real concerns with how the dominant languages of American domestic reform have gone hand in hand, have been very closely bound in the second half of the 20th century to the projection of American global power in ways that, you know, I think are 
really destructive that undermine the capacity of communities abroad to enjoy meaningful self-rule, that assert the U.S. as having a kind of permanent and continuous international police power that facilitates the promotion of an expansive and coercive security state. And I think that link actually has to be reckoned with. And so one way to do this is thinking about the deification of the Constitution in the U.S. So in national security debates, oftentimes the argument goes that, well, the U.S. did certain things in the past, like, for example, the internment of Japanese or the history of slavery, and that it's a faith or a commitment to constitutionalism and to an idea of the U.S.'s unique constitutional culture that makes this stuff less likely in the present. The way that I look at it is I kind of invert it and say, well, wait a second. One of the things that's really interesting is that, hmm. you know, if you look at the period from the 70s to today, the era of the most heightened veneration around the Constitution, that is also the period that people oftentimes refer to as the era of the imperial American presidency. Hmm. And you can tell or chart the same 20th century as, yes, it might be the case that massive internments of particular ethnic communities less likely today – but you also have repeated mass human rights infringements that occur over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And this to me has to do with the way in which the language of how reform is supposed to proceed by including new groups into a, an essentially liberal society that is exceptional, that's the world in miniature, by thinking of the Constitution as a near-perfect structure and as like the privileged way that the country interprets and reinterprets itself, all of this is actually bound up very closely to justifications for the projection of power mm -hmm. in ways that end up linking liberal, quote-unquote, and illiberal elements really closely together, and that Americans very rarely reflect on or interrogate. And you have traditions within the U.S., within the black radical tradition, within elements of the labor movement, within indigenous politics, within feminist politics that have reflected on these constitutive ties. But that's precisely those pressure points that require examination today, especially in a moment where, with the rise of Trump, it's harder than ever to take seriously the self-congratulatory story. Right. Tell me something what you said What would be a, what you would consider a more effective language for reform or framing reform as how do you do it without throwing out the whole project of the Constitution and saying, look, we have to look at the Constitution very carefully. It contains some elements that will continue to produce oppression. So how do you develop and what you just referred to, black radical tradition, feminism, indigenous movements? So there are certain movements and or the union movements What would you activate? Because what you're saying is that what you, I guess, calling liberals are too quick to use the Constitution to think that's going to help us advance our goals. From my perspective, one of the things that elements of all of these movements held in common was a suspicion of nationalism. And in the U.S., I actually think that's really important to be wary of nationalist tropes because of how closely it becomes associated with national security power, but also how much it ends up reasserting and legitimating elements of the settler past. Mm -hmm. And that what all of these different movements essentially argued was that solidarity should not focus on 
an account of national achievement that presumes that people that might have like fundamentally conflicting interests somehow share the same goals and objectives, but instead accept that at a foundational level that there are conflicts between subordinated, oppressed, and oppressive groups within the country, and that solidarity has to be among constituencies that share the same foundational goals Mm -hmm. and values, and that in the American historical past, if we're talking about with the Socialist Party or the populists in the 1890s or the CIO in the 1930s or the Poor People's Campaign in the 1960s, the closest that the U.S. has come to being able to take seriously the idea that its internal account of Republican freedom can actually be made universal is by saying, well, we need to organize on interest terms and create something like a multiracial, multi-identity, but class-based coalition Mm -hmm. on behalf of a certain set of values, values tied to kind of radicalizing the principles of democracy in politics, in law, through constitutional changes, and in, in the economy. And that's a strain of American life that's now coming back a bit today, mm-hmm. but that's been a really important part of collective past. And that's a very different way of thinking about solidarity, about the ends of politics, and about how the U.S. is situated in the world than the Cold War nationalism has operated regardless of party for a very long time. Right, right. I'm going to go back to this Whitman quote for another reason. You just named that solidarity could exist perhaps according to maybe the right word isn't class lines, but sort of shared interests which don't have to tie into one dominant national narrative, that culture has to play an important part here. Because I wonder whether the polarization and political struggles and what your book is trying to do is to say, where does the Constitution come in? Why does it play this role as a sacred text? And why do the justices have this kind of authority? That the cultural narrative of whether people can belong together in a movement without having to share all ideals, whether solidarity can be, I want to say, thinner than Mm -hmm. having to agree on everything, right? That there could be a coalition of people who otherwise maybe don't see eye to eye, but actually want to achieve certain goals, which is advancing democracy. Whether culture plays a role in this, that people can see one another without having to agree on some aspects of the political choices available. I guess what I'm trying to ask you is your books are, you're intervening in a kind of national myth in a constructive way and saying we could have a different story of ourselves without giving up who we are and it would be a more productive one, right? But that seems to me the work as much of culture as of you as a constitutional lawyer and a political scientist. Yeah, absolutely. So in the U.S., I mean, especially over recent decades, there have basically been two ways that people can think about, that people have been sort of allowed to think about solidarity. One way is straightforwardly through ethno-nationalism. You know, this is the deep and profound strain of white supremacy that runs throughout the American project, that what unifies Americans is whiteness or some account of ethnicity. And that's been contested, on the other hand, by... In a way, you know, with Habermas in, in Germany, you'd call this constitutional patriotism, with the idea that no, 
it's not ethno-nationalism that unites people as a country, as a nation, but it's belief in a set of pluralistic and liberal values as expressed in a, in a particular text. And this is the role that the constitutions play. In a way, one of the things that I want to say is that both of these approaches are deeply flawed. Like the white supremacist story is flawed for a very obvious reason. But the constitutional patriotism or the constitutional veneration story is also flawed specifically for the U.S. for two reasons. One, the way in which it obscures the settler foundations of American life, mm -hmm. that it reinscribes as liberal from the founding an historical practice that's actually grounded in enslavement and native expropriation, and that continues to inform the structure of American society. And so it's an approach to thinking about the project that makes it very difficult to come to terms with what needs to actually be changed. And then two, the way in which it's actually in the 20th century been closely bound to the expansion of American global power. Mm -hmm. And the imperial project, which itself needs to be contested for lots of different reasons. And so I say, you know, that that in American history, I mean, this is not the most unusual position, that there's been a third approach. And that a third approach has been, you know, material economic interest. And it's been the ground by which people of different communities, particularly African-Americans and whites, have been able to work collectively on various kinds of social projects. And you see this again, with populists, with labor movement, with poor people's campaign. And to me, the reason why I actually think that class politics and a focus on material interests are important as a ground for solidarity, and, and we can think of material interests more generally as something that's like shared experience, so it doesn't have to just be about you know, money and jobs, Right. is that it does two things. One is... It's the way in which in a country where you have a majority that's so clearly identify as white, that the kind of presumptive whiteness of a significant set of a population ends up being contested. It's actually the terms within which whiteness gets contested. That's the thing that's sort of important about having, let's say, white workers think of themselves as workers rather than as settlers. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, too, is it's through, in my view, the material everyday experiences that people share, that the building blocks of solidarity emerge. Now, if it just stays as purely about material calculations, and it doesn't become something broader, like a deeper kind of ethical commitment to the notion that there's a shared dignity and those that are oppressed should be defended precisely because their oppression is unacceptable, like what's happening, for example, at the border with children that are being disappeared by the Trump regime, then it can never really emerge into something more like than just, you know, a tactical alliance. But it's still in this way, I think, really central as a building block. And this this gets to, I guess, your point, which is the argument, therefore, is really, in a way, a claim about, you know, how culturally should Americans view their own collective inheritance? Mm -hmm. They should not view it as like a, a white nationalist past, and they shouldn't view it in this sort of mythical American liberal term, mm -hmm. but they should view it as this very complicated story about nation building that was closely bound and continues to be closely bound to settler expropriation. And that requires in the present 
an everyday effort to build alliance and solidarity with those that are unlike ourselves and to do so on the terms of what our everyday experiences are. And that to me is another way of describing both like the cultural ambition of the work, but also the political problem of the present. I love this. I actually think what you just said gives an account of the work you're doing in both of your books, Two-Phase American Freedom and then the new book, which I guess the rise of the Constitution will be coming out, I hope, at some point soon. <laughs> I don't know where you are in this book. Yeah, I'm but, almost <laughs> done with it. I'm hoping to be done within the year That's or to be done with a full draft this year. But what you're saying, I think, is in a productive sense, you're giving a critical meaning and informed account of the origins of America and of the Constitution as its foundational text and saying there's another way to not throw them out, but to use them critically, incorporate them, and come up with another way of thinking of people having a joint commitment. I think it's really great, and I actually think it's an important corrective because I think what we're also seeing is what you point out, that the other stories don't really work that well. There's too much pressure on them. These mythologies, I mean, if they ever worked, they didn't work for lots of people, but now there are obvious reasons. It's become more obvious that they don't work, these two mythologies. The last statement you made seems to me, in a way, if I can say this, <laughs> and I mean this in the best sense, a really profoundly American statement, while running the risk that I'm producing another universalizable narrative here. I think we might have actually reached a natural end for the conversation. Yeah, no, no, this is great. So I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I think this is a really important, informed and nuanced corrective that doesn't throw out the whole idea of the American project or the Constitution as a foundational text. So it's totally great. Thank you. No, thank you. You know, I appreciate you being in touch. And, and also, I appreciate you reading my work so carefully. That means a lot. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.